first, let's take a look at what was announced just a short time ago. If things go well during this period of time, we, we are buying time, as I've said a couple of times. We're buying time right now, between now and the end of the month, to understand these variants of concern, to get a better handle on them, now that we have some more restrictions on travel and borders, and um, to get our immunization program off and running again. That was Dr. Bonnie Henry after releasing the modeling slides and numbers saying the restrictions will stay in place. There is no end date, but talking about that time period from now until the end of February, uh, saying if things go well, there could be a return back to the safe six bubble sometime in March. Let's bring in Caroline Colleen, the SFU professor, Canada 150 research chair in mathematics for infection, evolution and public health. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Good afternoon. What are your thoughts so far on what we've seen? uh, The slides showing us that, yes, the the numbers are going in the right direction, but still uh, we have to be very careful. And again, Dr. Henry talking specifically about these variants. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, We are kind of on the knife edge and we've been sustaining, you know, a very slow decline in our case numbers. Uh, That could change. And I know no one wants to hear it, but the variants of concern, there's really strong data about them having a higher transmission rate. So if we're on a knife edge now and we found something with a higher transmission rate, it would grow and grow maybe alarmingly. So I think, um, yeah, we are we are on that knife edge and, and that's great for the COVID we have now. I think it does show us, too, the fact that these variants have arrived in all, you know, many parts of Canada um, that, you know, we have been having COVID introductions from elsewhere. These did not originate in Canada. And, and so the measures at the borders and, and around travel are really important as long as we also simultaneously keep tr- community transmission low. What do you think about the the numbers that were released? And I don't think it's a huge surprise. Uh, Dr. Henry talked a bit about the age uh, groups, saying that it is the younger uh, crowd, 20 to 45, I think she was saying, where we are still seeing that spread. But on the good side, that means uh, with the older, more vulnerable population, uh, we're not seeing as much. What do you think about that and how that's playing out? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I really feel for the, you know, normal adult working age people, and I, I guess I'm one of them, although I'm not that young. Um, you know, these are the people who have, in a way, suffered the most harm and are at the least risk, direct risk of COVID. And, you know, this framing that we take on our individual social lives, most of the burden of social distancing, you know, somehow IKEA can be super crowded or the other shops. Um, and of course, they have distancing measures in place to some extent, but but you're not allowed to have one friend over for one drink once a week. You know, this is it's very restrictive and the burden is on people's private lives. And and I sympathize. And actually, I think it's good to hear talk of, you know, what happens in March and if things go well. And I think we should be making a strategic plan towards reopening. And I think we should even be considering as we learn more about vaccines, we, we may want to consider vaccinating more widely and not sticking to just an age-based uh, plan because these, this age group isn't, isn't on the plan until September. So, you know, in a way that sort of says, well, it's not that important <laughs> to get you vaccinated. Um, so, so I do think we need more of a strategic plan. Uh, you know, that said, we're, we're doing really well with our case numbers overall in B.C., despite placing that burden on people's individual social lives. And and those also, you know, finally, I guess that's a, a group that some of them are in frontline work. 
they're not it's not just their social lives they they go to work they might work in uh in in public places in grocery stores in cafes in restaurants in in postal service in areas where we're asking those places to be open and they have to have contact yeah, and that was one of the points I think Dr. Henry made as well, saying exactly that. It's not it's not saying this group is just out partying. I'm sure there are people that are. There's probably people doing that in every group. But this is also a group, like you said, that is the transmission is being it's happening in the workplace as well. So it's it's not exactly it's not necessarily that someone's being irresponsible. It's uh, it's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's always kind of some temptation to to blame the young and that they're partying and, oh, goodness me, like those young people these days. And I think that's a really not helpful narrative. And I think, you know, we are asking people in essential jobs to have a lot of contact and then saying, you you know, you can't ever see your parents um, or your grandparents socially, but yet you can work in a shop all day where people are coming through, coming through, coming through. Um, so I think, you know, I think it's complicated and, and yeah, we shouldn't blame particular age groups. What do you think about the number of, of the transmission number is down? I think doc, Dr. Henry said it was around uh, 1% or it had fallen below 1%. How important is that number? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's an indicator of the overall decline or growth of cases. And, you know, let's hope we can keep it that way. Uh, to me, the concern is, is you know, as was mentioned, the, the variants and whether they actually have a higher transmission rate, because we could be doing exactly what we're doing now, but have something that's doubling much more quickly. And, and we don't necessarily even hear that impact um, until March in our in our overall numbers, just because it starts low. So I think that's uh, that's definitely another part of the story. And do you think as well, or when we look at this, and this is the first time I believe that they've put the restrictions or extended restrictions without an end date, saying that we need to look at what happens in the next few weeks, but still with that goal and that bit of hope that in March things will change. Um, is it the, the variants that we're looking at now? or What, what do you think are the, the, is the key factor as far as getting to that point in March where we might go back to that safe six? Right. I mean, you know, it's frustrating because there was one point these restrictions were first introduced and it was a two week timeline. And, you know, the writing's on the wall, nothing changes in two weeks and really nothing's going to change in three weeks. If we keep the same numbers, if we keep doing exactly what we're doing, the numbers haven't changed hugely. We're not going to be down to five cases a day in three weeks after what we're doing now, because we're hovering around the 300 ish mark. So we'll, in three weeks, we'll still have, 300-ish cases a day. We'll know more about what whether variants are here. They probably are. I, I imagine that they will be because we're not stopping them coming in from the U.S. or from the rest of the country. So I don't see that a lot will have changed. More of our most vulnerable will be vaccinated, and that's great. Uh, of course, it's important. But the rest of us, you know, everybody up to 70 or whatever the cutoff will be by beginning of March, will still not be vaccinated. And the rates of of risk in the rest of us, all of us, are high enough that reopening everything in three weeks, you know, not that much will be different. So I don't know quite what they're looking for. Um, I do think that we should be thinking strategically about how to get to reopening. And that might want, you know, we might want to think about rapid tests, putting political pressure on Health Canada for home tests. Um, because if, if we're not able to make a dent in transmission with vaccination until the fall, we don't want to be under this situation in Canada until the fall. So we do need to be thinking, how are we going to get to that reopening? Uh, but I don't think three weeks of what we're doing now will put us in a radically different position than we're in today.
All right. Uh, we'll leave it there uh, for today. Caroline, always good to talk with you on the program. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. That is Caroline Colleen, the SFU professor, Canada 150 research chair in mathematics for infection, evolution and public health. Taking a look at the very latest jobs numbers in Canada and in this province. And Ken Peacock joins me on the line, chief economist and vice president of the Business Council of BC. Thanks so much for being with us. You're very welcome, Joe. Uh, so not the the jobs numbers we've been used to as far as in the 10,000 number plus when it comes to job creation, but what's your take on what we were seeing in these numbers? Uh, I think you, you sort of summed it up there. The uh, We now, it seems like we're in this period where the, the big lift and the rebound that we experienced kind of in the latter half of 2020, is it's clearly slowing down and we just got a handful of jobs a uh, couple thousand in January, and the same thing played out in, in December. So uh, we sort of expected this after the initial sort of rehiring resurgence phase that, that it would be more difficult to see uh, employment kind of regain its, its its pre-crisis level. And we're kind of most of the way there, but things really have slowed down, Joan. Uh, well, even just before uh, we started this conversation, we heard in the travel report to Air Canada laying people off in the Rouge division, certainly uh, in other job positions. We know with the cruise ship ban now for another year, that's going to lead to, well, certainly there won't be new jobs in that industry. Are there any parts of BC where where you're seeing it kind of buck the trend or we're seeing more growth? Yeah, that, no, this is a, a great question. So you're precisely right. Those uh, areas of the economy that remain shuttered and it's, it's the international, tra- of course, travel and tourism is the epicenter of that. But uh, no, indeed, in, in BC, it's, uh, we've been fortunate because our, our kind of our export industries, our resource sector, forestry, mining, natural gas production, the related manufacturing, and then this kind of what I like to call non-resource manufacturing, uh, mostly located in the lower mainland, along with professional scientific and technical services, which captures the, you know, computer services that we've all been leveraging and using uh, more so since the pandemic. These areas actually are are growing and growing quite robustly. They're up uh, employment in those kind of collectively, those that group of industries is up 10% uh, over the past year. So it is strong growth, but it's, it's just not enough to offset the softness and the weakness in the other parts of the economy. And are we seeing kind of, I guess, is it is it leveled off as far as industries that have been able to, to still operate during the pandemic, even if it's kind of a scaled back version, uh, restaurants, uh, hospitality, uh, certainly tourism has been impacted by this. Uh, is, that, is that going to stay kind of level until we see restrictions lifted and vaccinations done and that until we can see uh, that they can change and grow? Yeah, I, I think you described it very well. Um, I, we got a we have a blog at the Business Council, and you know, write up write a fair amount up on the labor market. And I have a chart that shows exactly what what you're describing. You get a rebound in employment in the um, include and accommodation services and some of these other areas, and then over the past four to six months, there really has been a leveling off in that job recovery process. So that, uh, you know, that that speaks to the ongoing challenges and and just what we're hearing for the rollout and the vaccine to me suggests that we are going to see kind of soft 
employment, level employment in those harder hit sectors right through to September, you know, maybe even towards the end of the year. But we are also going to see at the same time uh, ongoing job growth in the other sectors and segments uh, of the economy. Overall, I don't think employment growth on a kind of a month-to-month basis will be very strong over the first half half of this year, maybe the first three quarters. Uh, and do you think as well, are we starting to see companies in that this past week, uh, we saw Bell Media laying off hundreds of employees and uh, getting called out for being one of the companies that's taken millions in federal money in aid because of the pandemic. Are we starting to see companies get to the point where, yes, we took the, the government money or in BC, I know there are some uh, businesses that are having trouble even accessing it, uh, but, but getting to that point where we took it, it helped us get to this point, but we simply have to lay people off or we simply can't continue on anymore yes this this is something we we worried about right from the outset i mean these programs that were rolled out were needed i I think back to the february march period it was panic governments didn't no had no idea what was coming at them so those monies were needed but it, there was always a sense that uh, it's postponing the inevitable for for some organizations and some entities, just so so-called kicking the can down the road. So that money, the temporary money, fills the gap. But exactly when it starts to get unwound, I think you're going to see uh, so, some more layoffs, and and it become evident that the, a, a larger number of companies are in distress than appeared while these uh, supports were in place. All right. Well, on that uh, happy, happy note, uh, Ken, we we will leave it there. I shouldn't joke about that, but uh, we've got to look forward to, to better times ahead. But we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks, Jill. All right. That is Ken Peacock, the Chief Economist and Vice President of the Business Council of BC. Well, we have been talking about this all week and we are going to continue talking about it while this problem persists. And things took a turn, you could say. We now know two men from Vancouver have been charged this following the murder of a 78-year-old woman who was beaten and then died a few days later. She was beaten in her home when two men posed as police officers and allegedly entered the house near Queen Elizabeth Park. We know that 41-year-old Pascal Bouthelet is charged with second-degree murder and Sandy Parisien, 47-year-old, is charged with manslaughter as well as some other charges. Uh, Yesterday, you may have heard Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. He agreed to do an interview with Linda Steele. He was on the Linda Steele show where he pointed fingers at just about every other group you could think of but took absolutely no accountability when it comes to the fact that Nothing has been done at this point to at least go after the criminal element in that park. And when asked about the fact that it's taking too long, this is what he said. We've done everything we can. We've secured, uh, you know, almost $100 million from both our coffers at the city and the federal level. Uh, we now have assurance from the province that they have, we have the wraparound services and assistance we need. And as Minister Eby said, that this will all be in place by April. Um, And it is too long for folks, but that's how long it takes to secure and uh, staff the housing that's needed to move those folks out. The alternative that lots of people are pointing to is just try to arrest your way out of this. And it won't, that will not work because many people that are homeless in the city are guilty of no crimes other than just being poor. Joining me on the line now is Dallas Brody, a spokesperson for the Citizens Group. It's a group called Save Our City Vancouver. Dallas, thanks so much for being with us. 
Thank you so much, Joe, for giving us some airtime. Uh, how do um, you respond to those comments? Well, I, I, Mayor Stewart's response to our, to our point of view is utterly inadequate. I've never seen or heard anyone pass the buck more than Kennedy Stewart. He blames COVID, homelessness, lack of funding, people for not being caring enough. That's a rich one. He points the finger at everyone but himself. And he is the CEO of this city. This is unacceptable. The CEO, the buck stops with him. And he needs to step up and tell the citizens what he's going to do. Not next week, not in a few months, today. Because we've been waiting and this situation has been percolating and boiling over and getting bigger since really last summer. Um, I hear now that he's even starting to blame the police. So, you know, gee, that's the, I, we don't have a lot of respect for that position. Uh, no, and I want to play one other comment, too, because he was really talking about this idea. And, and I'm not sure even who he was referring to, because I don't know of anybody that's suggesting the police go in there and arrest everybody. I think what people are saying is they would like the police to go in there. And if somebody's wanted on a Canada-wide warrant, which one of the men now charged in that murder was, maybe arrest them. But here's what he said about that. Having the, the VPD will not go in and arrest 150 people uh, for having, uh, most of whom have committed no crimes at all. Which is true. I, I, I'm, I'm willing to bet that is very true. And there are some of the most vulnerable homeless people in that camp who are also falling victim to the criminal element. Uh, what do you say to that in that the conversation seems to have shifted a little bit, uh, that granted it's very complicated dealing with people who are homeless, but it shouldn't be that complicated dealing with people who are wanted. We have been saying for a long time now, many months, that as a first step in all of this, the police must be able to go into these so-called camps and identify every single person living in those camps today. They need to get in there and get names, addresses, and find out who they are. It could be that there may be 15% of them that have outstanding warrants from across Canada. That deals with a lot of people right off the bat. In fact, we should have known already, and particularly the residents living down in Strathcona, should have been advised that there were people with outstanding warrants, Canada-wide warrants, sitting in their very neighbourhood. Those people need, those, those warrants need to be executed. And if there, and then, of course, you know, it's such a red herring to say, we're not going to arrest 150. That's, that's so... You know, that's so glib to just say something like that. That's not at all what people are saying. Everybody in Vancouver knows well that there are people down there who are really living on the edge of life. And they've got mental illness problems. They've got drug addictions, but they're not criminals. And they have problems, but they are definitely being preyed upon and living in the clutches of criminals who are amongst them. There's no question. And so we need to separate the criminals or the people who have warrants from those people who are mentally ill. And the mentally ill must be given immediate proper care and medical treatment. They need to be supported, but the others have to be taken out of there by the police. I really don't, I get upset when I hear him say, oh, we're not going to go in and just arrest. The police would never do that. Like, you know, that's never going to happen.
he was also saying yesterday that it's only the park board that can clear the park by getting an injunction, which again seems to completely ignore the the idea of people there with warrants that are criminals that are wanted on Canada wide warrants. Uh, there was also the issue of when police moved in to make those arrests, they were swarmed. They had to call a code three, which was asking every other officer available in the city to come and to help them because they felt threatened. Uh, some of the so-called camp leaders have uh, have defended that, saying, well, police can't just come in and start going through people's homes. So what are your thoughts when you hear that? Well, I, I see it as a home down there. It's, a, it's become a home, a den of people. And there are laws against harboring, you know, we don't use the word fugitives in Canada, but we, there are, you can't conceal people who have outstanding warrants. That's, that's uh, obstructing the law. And the, the police do have the right to go in and search for people. And you can't hide people who you know have outstanding warrants. That's against the law. If I did that, if I had someone in my house and I was hiding them, the police would darn right have the right to come into my house and haul that guy out. So those people are wrong in that. They, 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 the police need to do their work and we need to support them. And by the way, um, Save Our City Vancouver wanted to take a quick moment to say we want to commend those brave police, police officers and police dogs who risked their own safety to go into that viper's den and, and that has become the Strath Corner Park encampment. And we also, before we move on, wanted to express our deep and heartfelt condolences to the family and friends of Mrs. Singh. This woman was brutally beaten to death in her own home on Sunday morning. A lot of people out here are scared. And, and I, those, those people who are advocating for people in that encampment should be thinking about the rest of us, too. We're scared out here, and they need to help us eject these people from these encampments. And those advocates should be supporting police to remove criminal element, not hiding them. If their true caring is for the mentally ill and people suffering from horrible drug addictions, then show your true caring and remove the criminals. I suppose you're talking about Chrissy Brett. Well, she should get on the right side here and get these people out of there who are giving the whole camp a bad reputation. Uh, what else would you like to see or would your group like to see uh, done as far as you mentioned police going in there, being able to identify who is in the camp, uh, making sure they, they can separate the criminal element, uh, element sorry, from those who are homeless and do need those wraparound health services? What else would you like to see done right away? Well, some of the... We'd like, um, well, okay, so we would like all outstanding warrants. We'd like, to, first, we want every person identified who's living there. This would provide the people living in that neighborhood some sense of safety about who the heck is in there, what, and what kind of animals, what kind of exotic creatures. We don't know weapons. We need to know what's going on in there, everything. Um, and then all outstanding warrants executed. Uh, we would like anybody who has those warrants separated from the mentally ill the mentally ill and, and drug addicted being given proper care. And I'm not just talking about throwing them in a hotel and letting them just go on. We're, we're hoping for, we would like to see legitimate treatment facilities. When the mayor said yesterday he's, he's got $100 million and there are only 150 people in this camp, I'd like the listeners, I'd like to know what they think about $100, $100 million. That's a heck of a lot of money. And, and uh, only 150 people think what we could do for those people with treatment programs. Um, I think most people in Vancouver, in Vancouver are very caring people, but we've reached the breaking point. And um, if Mayor Stewart thinks this is a one-off crime, he's totally wrong about that, too, because the crimes, there have been several of them now, and the severity of them has been mounting. There was a, a horrendous 15-hour rape torture case in Oppenheimer Park. 
um, that was horrendous. There was a public, some people have thought it was a rape, it's public fornication on the street down on Hastings. We've had that poor woman in Strathcona, Katie Lewis, beaten over the head with a lead pipe. She could have been killed by that, by the way. Um, we've had a, we've had stabbing. We've had, there was a fellow running around with a chainsaw a while back, and then another man running naked around with like a seven-foot machete. We, we have problems. And so this has been growing, and I'm, I'm so sad that it took a death of, of a woman who could have been any of our mothers. Any oh. of our mothers. I, I can't imagine what that woman went to that morning. Do you know how scary that would be to have two men in your house beating you up? And they were probably trying to get her to tell them where her, her valuables were, and they beat her and beat her. And I, I really feel sick. And I wonder who's going to be next. And I would like Kennedy Stewart to start listening and get off his ideological positions and start getting pragmatic about solving this. All right. Dallas, we'll leave it there for today. But uh, I appreciate your time and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for giving us this precious airtime. And we need help at Save Our City. So if you want to sign up, we're just a small group, but we're trying hard to get the city back on track. Jill, thank you very, very much. All right. That is Dallas Brody, a spokesperson with the Citizens Group called Save Our City Vancouver. Well, earlier today, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was talking to the media. He took questions and many of those questions were about the vaccine rollout in this country and vaccine acquisition. And here was one of Justin Trudeau's answers to those questions. I have had uh, direct conversations uh, with the CEOs of both Pfizer and Moderna who have repeatedly assured me that Canada will receive uh, those doses uh, that we were promised, those 6 million doses, 4 million from Pfizer, 2 million from Moderna by the end of next month. Well, my next guest says Ottawa has botched the vaccine acquisition and has written about it in the National Post. Tristan Hopper joins me on the line now. Tristan, great to chat with you. Haven't talked to you in a while. Oh, yeah, it's good to be back. Thanks. Uh, Talk a little bit about uh, how much Canada has spent and where we are as far as uh, even in comparison to some other countries when it comes to vaccine acquisition and rollout. Yeah, uh, COVID-19 has been great for people who like looking at charts of data because this is something we we can compute in all different kinds of ways. So uh, there's been uh, on the first point, there's been analyses of how much this has cost different countries like per capita. Uh, what is their their spending on virology as a result of this pandemic? What is their deficit? Um, so in those charts, Canada is usually number one. So just in raw terms, whether it's stimulus, whether it's you know buying vaccines, whether it's the cost of lockdowns, government spending on this has been higher per capita in Canada than anywhere else in the world. And then when you look at the other charts of how many people are getting vaccinated, that's where we're really starting to fall behind. So in first place, you've got Israel, like 50 percent, more than 50 percent of Israelis have gotten the first of the two Pfizer shots. And then you look at Canada, we're like 30 or 35th place by now. uh, And only 2 percent of Canadians have gotten the the, the first shot. And then of those who have gotten the the two shots, so people who are fully vaccinated, it's like 0.02 percent. So it's basically negligible. Um, So what you're left with is we spend an awful lot of money. And uh, we are less vaccinated than basically any other equivalent country. 
Um, so a country that has the resources of Canada, you know, has a, a modern pharmaceutical industry, who should be able to, to do this well, all those countries are doing way better than we are on the vaccination trend. So what did, if we use Israel as the example, what exactly mm-hmm. did Israel do differently? Because from what I understand, it's also a country that doesn't manufacture much like Canada. What did they do differently to be in that position? So basically, um, this they got a jump start on us. They're like, well, we need vaccines. So immediately, like at the very early stages, I'm talking like spring of 2020, um, they just go out and find one of the most promising vaccine candidates, which was Pfizer, and made a deal with them. So it's a little murky as to how they got the deal with Pfizer to be the country that would see the first mass rollout. But what Israel will say, and this is what uh, members of the Israeli cabinet have said, is that we approached Pfizer and said, you roll it out here first. Um, we're going to kick ass at, roll, at rolling it out so we have a really good vaccine delivery strategy. So what you're going to be able to do is basically vaccinate all of Israel within several weeks of it being rolled out, and then we're going to deliver great data back to you. So essentially what you're going to do is, in exchange for rolling it out early in Israel, um, you're going to be able to show an entire country, uh, you know, beat COVID in this amount of time, and that's going to help with later marketing. So, and there's also, we don't know how much was paid for it, uh, but it probably Israel also put up a lot of money uh, to Pfizer. So, so basically had a clever strategy going in um, to strike a deal with Pfizer. Um, and then as a result, uh, they are definitely leading the pack uh, in terms of vaccination. And then you could have a different strategy like the U.S. and the U.K. They have their own problems with vaccination, uh, but they're definitely beating us. And one of the main reasons for that, um, at least what I've heard uh, from the medical community, is that they can make it in-house. So both in the U.K. and the U.S., uh, they're vaccinating their own citizens with made-in-country vaccine shots. Uh, Now, Israel didn't do that. All of those were made uh, abroad, but they had a good deal with it. Um, but Canada um, has kind of stuck at buying shots and making shots. So we kind of failed on both. Is it also who Canada kind of hitched their wagon to in the beginning? When you talk about Israel cutting this deal with Pfizer, uh, we know that Canada and the prime minister had an arrangement with a Chinese company uh, that went south. Uh, yeah. So at the same time, Israel is striking a deal with Pfizer. Uh, Canada had hitched its wagon to CanSino. Uh, this was a Chinese company. Uh, but actually, at the time uh, that the deal was struck with Canada, uh, this was one of the most promising uh, COVID-19 vaccines uh, coming due, and may eventually prove to be a key tool in the fight against COVID-19. Um, so, but just a few days after this is announced that Canada is going to have this, you know, massive rollout of the CanSino vaccine, uh, the Chinese government blocks all exports to Canada, and the supposition is that the People's Republic of China, the leaders are dicks; they don't like Canada. Um, this was purely out of diplomatic spite because we have Ming Wanzhou, um in custody. So, yeah, in hindsight, I think it's fair criticism to say maybe we shouldn't have hitched our vaccine wagon to the one country that hates us most in the world and kind of has a history of screwing us over for arbitrary reasons lately. And is still holding at least two of our citizens, and we don't want to forget about that either. Um, What about the issue of the amount of doses in that you talk about this in the column that you've written, that we are a prolific hoarder of COVID-19 doses? So when you look at pre-orders, so this is, uh, we've contracted with companies that have vaccines under development and we say, well, we want to reserve this many doses. So when you look at that, and this is what you're going to hear the federal government bragging a lot about, 
is, well, we've reserved 30 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine. We've reserved another 30 million of the Moderna vaccine. These aren't real numbers, but when you add all of those up, uh, there's massive pre-orders with at least six companies. When you add all of those up, there's technically in the pipeline like nine doses per person, just this crazy amount of doses coming due for Canadians. Uh, but that doesn't mean those are those are promissory doses. That doesn't mean we're at the front of the line or we're going to be getting these anytime soon. It just then it means that at some point we have a lot of pre-orders out with a lot of vaccine doses. Um, so at some point uh, they will presumably arrive here. Uh, but that it doesn't really have a lot of relationship to uh, how, how how quickly we are in the vaccine pipeline. Uh, what do you say then to, to some who will come to the defense of the federal government and say, well, hold on a sec, don't be so mean. We've never done this before. The world has never seen uh, such an initiative before. Oh, well, it, it just uh, I mean, if, if if we weren't in a situation where other comparable countries uh, had nailed this and I mean, I, I sort of touched on this in the story. There were people within Canada saying, hey, we're a we're a, a pharmaceutical lab. Uh, we know how to replicate this particular vaccine. Uh, sign up with us and we can roll this out in 2020. That's ignored by the government. So uh, there's a few instances of those. So, yeah, we haven't done this before, but you can look around the world at other countries with the same resources or even less resources that, uh, uh, than Canada who have done way better. So, yeah, I, I know we're all hesitant to sort of blame it's like, this is a natural disaster. Nobody caused COVID-19 intentionally. Uh, but just like a lot of things that have happened during the pandemic, I, I think it's fair to chalk this up to policy failure. All right. Well, it is a very interesting uh, column, and uh, I enjoyed reading it. People can read it uh, in the National Post. Tristan, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That is Tristan Hopper. He's a columnist with the National Post. And again, this particular piece looks at, and I'll just read the title, How Ottawa Utterly Botched Canada's COVID Vaccine Acquisition. Well, we have been talking a fair bit about Super Bowl Sunday and how it is going to look different this year. Not a big surprise there. We've also heard from WorkSafe BC earlier today. uh, They put out, uh, I guess you could call it a warning. They put out uh, a news release saying, reminding bars, pubs, restaurants, uh, reminding them uh, to maybe refresh uh, their COVID-19 safety plans to uh, take a look at that and remember exactly what needs to be in place uh, to remain open and to remain open safely. Also uh, telling restaurants, bars, pubs, that there will be increased inspections to make sure everybody is following the rules. Is this leading to more confusion, though? Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Owen Coomer, the Tap House Coquitlam Operations Manager. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, not a problem. Thanks very much for having me. So how are you feeling about things going into this weekend? Well, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. I, I'm not quite sure, actually. Um, obviously, it's been a uh, very difficult uh, trying time over the last week. Um, uh, we've been on the phone with everything from Able BC to uh, WorkSafe to uh, just trying to figure out everything to do with uh, what we were expecting with uh, the Provincial Health Authority come, obviously, today and the announcements and stuff like that. And uh, still a lot, of, a lot of questions, I guess. Um, but, I mean, it, it's it's... It's fairly straightforward, but there's a lot of, lot of kind of gray areas that I think still haven't really been rectified. So, so, so what are some of the gray areas? 
Well, uh, for for instance, um, you know, obviously, you know, it's just even to do with the, the six people and you our guidelines of making sure that they're in the same household and things like that. And I mean, we've whether it's people that come in and give a telephone number or their name, uh, you know, we believe on the honor system that these people understand that they're adults. Uh, that uh, there's not really an, an ability for me to really prevent people from. Uh, you know, not understanding who's in whose bubble and who's with, you know, without checking IDs. Like, even then, uh, it's just, it, it's a little difficult, uh, you know, trying to maintain that kind of order. Um, you know, nobody's calling the number saying that better ring, <laughs> you know, and it better be the right number. Don't lie to me. I mean, it's just, uh, there, there's that. There's the elements of prizing. I mean, uh, we as a company have uh, given away prizing almost every, you know, NHL Canucks game. We've done um, jersey draws uh, throughout the year for every uh, NFL game and then all of a sudden comes Sunday which we've given prizes to on Sundays before all of a sudden prizing is not okay and I don't really understand how prizing has anything to do with the transmission of COVID like why couldn't we just you know get everybody's name that uh, you know comes in our place and we randomly call them in a couple weeks and say hey you want a big screen TV I mean you know a lot of people have been out of jobs they've been looking forward to getting some sort of you know you know good win in this environment a positive aspect so what, how does prizing have anything to do with anything? Why is it that it was okay for us to put up Christmas decorations or New Year's balloons, but we're not allowed to put up Super Bowl, uh, you know, decorations like a football? Like I have jerseys up, but I have to pull everything that has to do with football down. It's just, I, I mean, that, that's where there's a lot of uh, gray areas. And then um, even our uh, jersey boards that we buy directly from the government uh, to do with square boards, we're not allowed to do those. But yet Kino and pull tabs are still allowed. So it's just, uh, I, I just want to make sure that we're definitely, you know, adhering to all the policies and stuff like that. But how many other places are not going to be or they're going to be skirting the lines? And that's where I have kind of an issue. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense when you talk about the Kino and the, the different games. I didn't realize the prizing. So is that different specifically for Super Bowl? That's what they're trying to, you know, insinuate. And it's kind of one of those ones where... Um, you know, we've had a host, for instance, kind of MC, you know, our, our NFL uh, package, basically, you know, uh, each each place and, and, and a lot of other bars have been. And it's basically, you know, stating that you can't do that uh, because, I mean, you could you could on one hand say, well, we are uh, we've always done it. But I'm just not interested in scrutinizing that rules. Like, why is it that all of a sudden, you know, even with liquor, we can't have liquor specials? But liquor specials isn't what was drawing customers in there. We were just kind of you know, having some sort of thing, but every place is doing happy hour. So does that mean I have to drop my happy hour, even though we've always had it in place? Or I just don't want it to be where one inspector comes in and, and reads a rule a certain way, but yet, you know, another one doesn't. And, and that's where, again, I'm not blaming anybody. I just, you know, I, I'm just thankful that in BC, we are ahead of the curve compared to everybody else. I mean, it's been phenomenal. I can't imagine what the rest of the country is going through. It's just, it's just really trying sometimes when, uh, there's kind of a, a lot more than just here, here, read this, you know, no decorations. Well, does that mean that I can't put up a, a balloon, you know, because again, somebody could go in and be like, this is, this is an enticing that you're having an event. And I, I just, I don't think that that's right. Well, no. And, and is that the rationale that if you put up decorations, it's suddenly a, a big party? I don't understand how a decoration, like you said, putting up a Jersey or a balloon suddenly makes it unsafe. Well, well, exactly. Like even for me, like we had ended up con- uh, condensifying our our just our regular menu uh, for for Super Bowl, uh, just because obviously we expect it to be fairly busy, but we wanted to streamline so that you know the kitchen times. Well, the menu that I printed had a football field on it, and it had the word Super Bowl, 
I had to throw those out and, and redo them, which cost X amount of money, because, again, I'm just not willing for somebody to look at it and say, this is different than what you're normally doing. Well, no, it's not. It's just that it's our menu, but it's reduced. But it's just because it has something to do with uh, a sporting aspect to it, where it's, you know, you know argue it says football or a Super Bowl, that, again, the potential of somebody, you know, finding or, or, you know, us getting in trouble. I mean, again, we're not interested in doing it. That's why we're, we're definitely going to make sure that we're adhering to every policy possible. But I just, I know there's going to be a lot of people that skirt the rules and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of agencies that are saying, well, you know, it depends on your inspector. And I don't think that that's right. You no, know? no, so, it shouldn't be. The, the whole point of, of doing different things is to differentiate yourself as a business, you know, and to entice guests to come into your place, whether you're a restaurant, a bar, a pub, whatever, that's part of business. And it's just basically making it seem like everything is, um, you cannot do anything, uh, you know, to, to attract people whatsoever and just show the game. Yeah, it's very interesting. What about the volume of the game itself and the fact, how does that work? Or is that easy for you to do as far as not having it so loud that people are then yelling? Well, to, to be honest with you, um, uh, we've had that rule kind of in place for almost since kind of that reopening aspect. It hasn't really affected us that much. Obviously, it's very difficult because when you have a lot more people in there than in normal times, obviously the volume is going to have to be up a little bit more so than not. Uh, I know that there is, hopefully there's going to be an understanding from some inspectors that come from the outside that when they walk in the door that they actually adjust their ears to the sound inside rather than come in and be like, take it back. But, you know, we, we've done a very good job about making sure that, you know, it is at optimal level. And, and ultimately what it comes down to is they just don't want people to have to talk over just a normal conversation, hooting, hollering, all that other stuff. I mean, I'm not even sure if you're aware, but uh, the rules and regulations state that you're not allowed to even sing happy birthday at a table. So <laughs> it's quite funny. Like, uh, but, um, you know, we've had, we've had, you know, music, uh, you know, no DJs or anything like that. We've had just optimal levels and with our TVs and sports, whether it was the Canucks or whether it was your UFC with McGregor, um, we've kind of learned to adapt that and, and people kind of understand that they're kind of going to get the sound as, uh, optimal as, as best. So, sorry, just to clarify that, is it the staff aren't allowed to sing to the table or the table no, itself? everybody. You're not allowed to Nobody. sing. You, you, you can't <laughs> sing in general. Huh. Which, I yeah, mean, I know. It's really confusing yeah. because at the end of the day, I know this sounds really strange, but way back when, when the Canucks uh, were in the playoffs this past year, uh, you know, with that whole bubble, bubble world NHL, you know, when the Canucks won and, you know, people are up in there, they're wanting to chant, they wanted to sing, and we're like, no, you can't do that. You cannot, you cannot, you know, say you can't hoot, you can't holler, you can't do anything. It's uh, again, a lot of it's just a transmission of the the droplets and stuff. Like I, I understand to a to a uh, to a you know, in essence, about it, but it can be just really try, quite trying as uh, as staff trying to regulate, you know, because people in this world they're just looking for any excitement, and I feel really bad for that that we have to kind of monitor that and police that. Uh, exactly. And at the same time, and you're trying to stay in business and trying to make a go of it while we continue with the pandemic. How has it been for your staff as far as uh, we know, too, when people get a few drinks in them, they can sometimes uh, be a little belligerent. How, how has your staff been able to handle it? Um, you know what? Uh, to the best of the, their ability. I mean, the thing is, we've been open for basically almost 10 months since, again, that reopening from COVID uh, closures and we're not interested in having any more people lose their jobs. We're not interested in 
uh, trying to make that extra buck. We, we're trying to adhere to the government uh, with the regulations. So that, that change almost daily. And, that, and if anything, that's the most trying thing is to trying to educate the guests about what the new regulations are. Almost, you know, again, it's not as bad as it was before, but there's definitely weekly changes. Uh, I mean, even even the, the the rule that got stated now, they're not even giving a date as to when the the opening up of things because it could be a week, couple weeks from now or it could be months from now. They don't even want to give a, a time where they have to come back and decide to extend the rules. With uh, with our with our staff, I mean, it's hard. But everybody knows that in the hospitality industry has been decimated. I mean, 80% of businesses aren't even making money. And I'd say that 50% of them aren't even open. I mean, downtown, the core, I mean, it's it's completely decimated. And I just, I know that together, you know, we unite and hope that we just do our best and hope that our fellow, you know, bar restaurant has their staff also understand that uh, this is not going to change for a little bit and that we just have to ensure that, the guests and the staff are as safe as possible and that perception is there that, um, you know, there's no transmission of anything going on in our bars. Yeah. You know, but it's still trying. I mean, people aren't making as much money as they used to. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's it's been it's been challenging. It's been really challenging. Uh, you mentioned off the top as well to the the honor system when people come in and they give a phone number. And I mean, you must see this all the time. I see this when I go out to tables that clearly aren't households. They're friends, yeah. and people are doing that. Uh, but again, it's not up to your staff to police this. It's it's not as though that's a, a public health order that somebody's going to get a fine for. But that's got to be frustrating if for no other reason than putting your staff at risk. Oh. A hundred percent. But here, here's the, the, the other flip of the coin is that, um, and this goes across all age demographics, but um, the rules that stipulate that if you're, if you live alone, you're allowed to have an upwards of one or two or possibly three, I can't remember the exact number uh, of people um, that can be a part of your close bubble. Well, how can we determine whether that three people are, that are at a table together, we know that they're not together, but that might be one of their three. Mm-hmm. And this is where it just comes down to, you just have to ensure that people are understanding that we all have to, you know, get through this together and that we just hope that they just follow the rules. And, uh, but again, they're adults. Uh, I mean, we have to just accept reality that, you know, we put the onus on the customer, but again, for us and our staff, that we just operate as safely as possible, making sure that, you know, we're wearing masks, that we're sanitizing, that we're staying, you know, apart from tables as best as we can and so on and so forth. And any dirty glassware or any of that kind of stuff, we're instantly washing our hands right afterwards before we decide to, you know, to touch something else. Like that's on us to determine to make sure that the staff are, you know, well engaged to kind of our safety protocols and stuff like that. But yeah, is it, is it, can it be frustrating? Absolutely. But I, I'm going to be firsthand at telling you that I know that it's been a long time since I've got to have a beer with a friend, but you know, <laughs> you know we all have to make sure that we do everything possible to maintain the, the right order. So. All right. Well, it sounds like uh, you will have people there uh, on Sunday and uh, things will look different and be very different, but hopefully people will still be able to to have a good time and you don't have to worry about it being uh, one particular uh, officer or bylaw person uh, interpreting the rules. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today and good luck this weekend. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. All right. Again. All right. You too. That is Owen Coomer. He is the operations manager of the Tap House Coquitlam. My guess is there are a few operations, uh, bar managers, restaurant owners uh, in the same boat wondering what exactly uh, they can do uh, come the weekend. Well, as mentioned, Vancouver Coastal Health has now put out, uh, issued a news release asking, encouraging all Whistler residents and potential visitors to maintain the ongoing 
efforts to stay safe and to prevent the transmission of COVID-19. This after the numbers were released earlier today, 259 cases of the virus detected in Whistler from January 26th to February 2nd. And if we look at the time period of January 1st to February 2nd, a total of 547 cases in Whistler. Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this and what's coming up is Jack Crompton, who is the mayor of Whistler. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, what are your What is your reaction to these numbers now that we, we know how many total cases, at least that we know of in Whistler? Uh, it's, it's troubling and it sort of focuses our, our efforts on, on all that needs to be done and, and turning that um, concern into action, as I said to you before. Uh, we know, and uh, this uh, release talks about it as well, saying the majority of cases uh, identified as younger people, people in their 20s and 30s, uh, who live, work, and socialize together. How do you deal with that, especially in a setting like Whistler, where so many people have roommates and do spend all of this time together? Vancouver Coastal Health has been working very hard to help people who are in those congregate settings as they isolate, and then we've put... Um, some isolation units in place that will help people who do live in some of those congregate settings get out of them so that they can protect themselves and protect the people they live with. Uh, Dr. Henry talked as well about the fact that day trips are still okay, but they're really discouraging people from coming and staying in hotels and visiting over a period of time in Whistler. How do you discourage people from doing that? Well, it's just not, I think people have heard it and I, and I, you know, come on a show like yours and, and hope to be able to say it again. Now is not the time for a vacation in Whistler. None of us should be traveling for family day or spring break. We need to stay home and enjoy being with our families on family day rather than um, going away on a holiday. Um, and then really focusing our messaging as a resort and all of resort message towards that um, please don't uh, vacation in, in our community. So I say it as much as I can. Please stay home, stay local, um, stay with your family. We've seen some images coming as well. And again, Dr. Henry saying that the transmission isn't happening on the mountain, not uh, during the act of skiing or snowboarding, but more with the socializing after. Uh, we have seen a lot of photos, though, where it looks like it's very busy in the village, very busy in the lineups. Is it a case, do you think, of photos that look worse than it actually is? Or is that an issue of people crowding around and being in lineups for lifts and that kind of thing? Well, the data sure doesn't support that there's spread happening uh, in those lines. And there is a, a significant limitation on the number of people who can ski every day. And that number doesn't grow with the number of people who desire to ski. So it is a much lower number than it has been in the past, as dictated by VCH. There isn't the kind of spread that you, you might expect when you see some of those photos and there is spread in the places where we're focusing our attention and i think that that's what i've taken away from what dr henry is leading us towards which is let's fix the problem of transmission of the virus not of um you know not not trying to fix a problem that that doesn't necessarily exist so our goal right now is to make sure that people take the actions that they need to and that we address the problems as we see them, which is those congregate housing settings and then people um, partying with those who are outside of their household. That's just not an acceptable activity at this point, and we're going to do everything in our power to discourage it.
Uh, and when you talk about people uh, that now is not the time to visit and to stay and to have trips for whether it's family uh, day weekend or, or any weekend, um, is there a difference, do you think, between people who would be coming and staying in hotels uh, opposed to those who maybe have second homes or dwellings in Whistler and want to go there for the weekend? Uh, I, I think the message is to everyone. It's to all of British Columbia. It's to all of our community. Uh, we need to get through COVID-19 for us to have a sustainable and, and vibrant economy and for us to participate in tourism. This is serious. In my view, this is about saving our season. And that is going to take an all-person approach And it's no small thing for us. 14,000 people are employed in tourism in our town. And if we lose our season, the repercussions are enormous. And so I don't think anyone is exempt from the request. It's a request to all of us to take action. Is that part of the issue, though? And this has been brought up several times in that people who have purchased passes and have already paid out big money uh, to go and to ski and snowboard and to take part in the season, uh, they don't get a refund if they don't come. So even if they might be reluctant, they might still go because they don't want to lose out on that money. Mm -hmm. That is a challenge. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we're trying to struggle through here right now. But again, the problem is not with a day skiing. The problem is with vacationing. And um, we have very candor-filled conversations in our community and and with those uh, authorities that are helping us get through this about what's happening and ensuring that we respond well. And, and frankly, my goal is to just make sure that people know that their actions matter and, their, and the way they respond will dictate whether or not uh, Whistler Blackcomb can stay open, whether Whistler can stay open, whether our community can continue to participate in, um, in, in enjoying a ski season. Uh, we talked to uh, the uh, to the Big White Resort a few weeks ago. They were actively canceling all hotel reservations for anybody who was out of town, out of uh, a certain uh, radius of the ski resort itself. Are there any plans in Whistler to stop people from making hotel reservations if you're not from the Whistler area? You know, the, the, the big white effort was an Okanagan Valley um, is, is sort of considered the local uh, ski area. I think the push is towards day skiing. We want to see people day ski, but not stick around and and apre. And so the goal is to suggest to people, uh, get in your vehicle, go to the ski hill, enjoy a day outside, get in your vehicle and go home. But suggesting that and actually getting people to do that are quite different. Doesn't it kind of send the message if the hotels are still open that people can, in fact, book hotel rooms? You know, the direction around how this is managed comes from people with deep expertise like Dr. Henry and her team. And as I understand it, and I am no expert, the decisions are made based on where the virus and how the virus moves. And so they are not seeing the virus move in a day skiing setting or in those settings that they've kept open. And when they see transmission there, they do something about it and they, and they take action. And that's what, what happened this weekend. We sent out a large number of people who represented Vancouver Coastal Health, the RMOW, the RCMP, to make sure that people were complying with the COVID safety plans that uh, exist. Those plans protect us. 
And if people aren't abiding by them, they need to be corrected. And, and we, will, we are taking that very seriously. Uh, tickets are being handed out and, and people are being asked to abide by the COVID safety plans that have been set up by people with deep expertise in the field. Do you know how many tickets have been issued? I don't have that in front of me right now. Sorry, Jill. No problem. But do you know what? So what types of tickets were handed out? Do you know? Uh, congregating, um, you know, in mixed settings. Uh, the in, It's basically enforcing the regulations that are in existence through the Provincial Health Office and, and Vancouver Coastal Health. All right. Uh, Mayor, just before I let you go, you mentioned that the, this, these are actions that need to be taken to ensure that Whistler and Whistler Blackcomb stay open. Uh, what would it take or, or are you are you uh, fearful that if this doesn't happen, I mean, could we see a, a shutting down of the resort? I, I am. I'm not. I'm not fearful and focused. I'm focused on making sure that doesn't happen. That isn't a decision that would be taken uh, by anyone here. That's a decision that is would be taken by the provincial health office. And um, uh, we're all doing everything in our power to ensure that that's not a decision that they have to take. All right. We'll leave it there. Uh, Mayor Crompton, thanks so much. Always good to talk with you. It's a pleasure. Have a great day, Joe. You too. Jack Crompton is the mayor of Whistler.